And today's scripture reading is from Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and can be found on page 807 of the Blue Pew Bible. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. Let's ask uh, God's mercy upon us as we consider this passage. Lord, uh, you've given this word, this precious word to us. Uh, Open our eyes, Lord, that we might uh, understand it, that we might hide it in our hearts, that it might encourage us, that it might give us deeper faith, deeper enrichment of your glory and beauty. We ask that you would do this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, We're celebrating today uh, in some ways, and certainly through this passage, uh, what we call epiphany, which means an appearing. It's the appearing of Christ, but in history it has more or less centered on the appearing of Christ and particularly the wise men's visit, although epiphany is broader than that. That's why we're considering this. And you may feel like I thought Christmas was over, right? Um, But this is the uh, historical, traditional day to celebrate Epiphany. And it's appropriate also because it's likely that the wise men didn't visit uh, at the very time of his birth, but perhaps as much as two years later, which is why toward the end of the chapter, Herod Uh, After ascertaining when they saw the star, they traveled a long way. He had the children two years and younger killed in in Bethlehem. So it is a later uh, epiphany, a a later. uh, In fact, this is also his appearance or his being revealed to the Gentiles. The, the, The wise men, as we'll see, represent 
the Gentiles. Uh, and this even anticipates the very last chapter in Matthew where he says, go into all the world and make disciples. So here at the very beginning, the world, in a sense, the Gentiles come and worship him. And at the very end of Matthew, they're sent out to those Gentiles. So a, a marvelous uh, literary work as well as just revealing, of course, the beauty and glory of Jesus. But the question we have uh, as a title is, what is your response to Jesus? And to get at that, we're going to consider three sets of characters that exhibit in this passage three pretty clear responses to Jesus. And as we explore their responses, I hope it can uh, give us a better handle on our response. So what is your response to Jesus? Are you troubled by him? Take King Herod. He'd been king uh, over Judea for about 30 years, gifted leader, many accomplishments, but he was increasingly cruel and paranoid uh, later in his life, killing, among others, his own wife and several sons he suspected of wanting to overthrow him. Now, he heard this report uh, from the wise men as a threat. And so did all the leadership of the city that was under Herod. King of the Jews, this has the makings of an uprising. We could all be overthrown. Everyone's upset, troubled by this. Now, you're not Herod, you're not the political leaders of Jerusalem, but for different reasons, we could still ask, does Christ trouble you? Herod thought that he would lose his position and honor. Does the thought of giving your life up to Jesus Christ trouble you? There's this similarity between Herod and us in this respect because he wanted control, right? And we want control of our lives. By nature, we want to pursue our own happiness without any interference from God. And it is hard to give that up to God. It's hard to entrust ourselves to him. We fight it like Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. So Bilbo had possessed the ring for for a whole long time in his life. And he's old. He's going to go somewhere to uh, retire to spend his last days, and he's supposed to give the ring to his uh, nephew Frodo, right? And uh, he told Gandalf, the, the, the wizard, that he was leaving, leaving the ring with, with him. And he was just about to step out the door when Gandalf said, Bilbo, the ring, it's still in your pocket. Oh, why, yes, yes, it is strange. Oh, well, and he says a few more things, acts like he took care of giving the ring to Gandalf, and he starts to leave again, and again, Gandalf has said, Bilbo. So it was only at the very end that he threw the ring down on the floor and walked out, you know, because the ring was absolutely precious to him. It had begun to eat at him. And it's very similar with us. Having control of your life will ultimately eat at you. It will not lead you in good places. Having control of your life is just like that precious ring. We're we're troubled by the thought of putting it into God's hands because we don't know what he might do. We don't know where he might send us. We don't know what he might ask us 
tell us to, to do or go. Uh, or you may be troubled because you think there's no way that God forgive, could forgive me for all that I've done and said and thought. There's just no way. It troubles me to try to, I, I just need to stay away from God. I don't need to come to him and be exposed. Or I've heard this and thought this myself uh, before I became a Christian. There's no way I could ever live up to the standard of being a Christian. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't be good enough to be a Christian. And so it troubles us. It troubles us to put our life in his hands. It troubles us. Forgiveness to, to change. These are troubling things to us. But the good news, of course, is that this king, this child who they were coming to worship, showed his magnificent kingship by dying for his people on a Roman cross. And on the cross, he bore away the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Now, that means, one, that you can trust a God who would die for you, that he's going to do you good. No, you there's not another person in the world, even your closest people, who will always do you good. Nobody. Nobody can. We're not that good. God is that good where he would only do you good. Think of those people who rescue animals. They don't rescue the animals so that they can then torture them more, right? It's amazing, isn't it? The care and concern and you know, nursing these animals back to life. I have my own story. don't have time to tell about my own mother doing this with a stray cat. Well, God would take you in to rescue you and comfort you and, and heal your wounds and build you up and make you strong in him. And he's about change and he's about forgiveness. That that's the whole point. I will change you. I will, I will take it on, he says. And I've died that you might be forgiven, not just barely forgiven, but that you might live in my favor all the time. That's what he offers to you. Now, if you're going to be troubled, be troubled about facing judgment in the last day without the covering of Jesus. Now, that's something that should trouble you. But to come to this one who would forgive you and change you and do you good all of your life. Don't be troubled. Imagine a cave-in and people have come to rescue you and it troubles you that they're there. (laughs) No, we're getting you out of here. You You should be troubled because you're in the cave-in, not because we come to rescue you. So, are you troubled by this king? Don't be troubled. Trust him. Trust him. And then we can ask, are you apathetic toward him? This is not as apparent, but several commentators point out the fact that even though the priests and the leaders of the Jews hear from these wise men about the Savior, uh, the, the king, and they know they're going to Bethlehem, They don't go. They don't check it out. They don't care. Like, they just go about their business as priests. You know, yeah, whatever. 
you know, except that they don't want an uprising, you know, it might mess up things, especially the Sadducees who were in tight with the leadership, right? But why don't they run to Bethlehem? So we can ask this question, are you apathetic toward Jesus? You know, Webster's having little or no emotion or feeling toward Jesus. Little or no emotion or feeling. Now, of course, this is certainly the case of many and perhaps most outside the church, but this can really be a problem with us who've been either raised in the church or we've been in the church a long time. When Kay and I were married in our first year uh, in Memphis, I was, we were doing a clinical year, and we were, and I can say by God's grace, are madly in love, Right? But we had so many older people. And they, you know, we're affectionate, we're this and that. And, and they would just shake their heads. I mean, I can remember specifically several people that would just shake their heads and say, you'll get over it. Now, I know we do, uh, we do get over it and, we, you know, things are different and we've seen each other's backsides, you know, and all this. But thankfully, we're fiercely in love. Um, but we can be this way with people who come to know Christ. You know, we see their excitement, we see their joy, you know, we see their energy, and we're kind of thinking, yeah, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. Who's wrong here? What's the problem here, right? They, they, they should join us in our excitement, right? They should catch up to us because we've had maybe decades of excitement. Yes, yes, isn't it wonderful? Come on, let's, you know that, rather than, mm, oh well. Because we, we know, we, we're, we're, we're experienced, you know. We, we, we know it's not that much, there's not that much to be excited about. So, it can happen also when you've been raised in the church. And, and here's how that can happen is when you're young and you're hearing things in worship, maybe you don't understand a lot of what's happening and you just kind of check out, you know. And you don't listen that much. And the problem is you never check back in. <laughs> and you can think there's nothing here for me or the comment, I've heard that before. I know about Jesus. I know, I know about Christ. You're not telling me anything new. But again, using our little cave illustration, it would be pretty sad if rescue workers come in and, you, and your reaction is not, thank you, I'm rescued, rather than, oh, hey. It would be pretty freaky, right? That you'd have that reaction. Someone has come to rescue you. So, Paul says this, you know, Jesus healed a lot of different kinds of diseases and these were pictures of his salvation. And in many respects, they kind of image aspects of our salvation. One of them is blindness. He healed a blind man. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, that the evil one, Satan, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe 
so that they can't see the magnificence and beauty of Jesus. So it, it's hard to it's hard to kind of get above and look down and think, wait a minute, if I don't care anything and I'm bored with Christ, you just tend to think that's me. You know, I'm just bored and and it, it's not there's nothing there for me, and I just not going to get interested in it ever without realizing, wait a minute, I'm blinded. I've been blinded to the beauty that's right before me. Like a sunrise is right there and I don't see it. There was a scene in a movie where this young man who devoted his whole life to going into the Air Force And they're in a van, and his little sister shows him this basic uh, test for... She didn't really realize what it was, but it was a test for colorblindness. And she said, read this. And he couldn't read it. And he realized, I can't go in the Air Force. I'm blind, colorblind, you know. We need that realization. He is glorious. He is magnificent. He is awe-inspiring. He is breathtaking. It's the revelation of God himself in Christ. But the good news is that Paul says that he himself, Paul, the apostle, he said, we all were blind like that. But what happened to us? He says, the God who said, let there be light, shone into our hearts to reveal the beauty of Christ. That's what we have to have, right? Each one of us. If you're five years old or 55 years old, we must, we must seek him and say, oh, Lord. And, and, of course, we're never, we're fighting blindness in one sense till we die, right? Of, of wanting to see him better and see him more and, and have more and more passion for him. But it is wonderful to know that the God who shown in creation will shine into our hearts continually to give us the beauty of Jesus, which we so desperately need. So are you troubled by him or are you apathetic toward him? Or finally, do you joyfully worship him? Now, in spite of the popular song, uh, we three kings, uh, they were not kings. uh, They were counselors to kings. Uh, the plural word here in the Greek is mad goy. In the Greek, it'd be goy, but we kind of have a G, a G there. In some translations, that's why they call them the magi, because of the Greek word magoi. Our word magician comes from this as well. And in some ways, they were they flirted with magic. Yeah, they they really did. Um, Actually, in Daniel 2.48, Daniel, who was a Jew, was put in charge of all the wise men. And these were not only teachers of science and religion, but they had a focus on astronomy and astrology, right? Um, Daniel had to be immersed in all the knowledge, and a lot of it was magic, okay? Not that he participated, but he knew it inside and out. And it's possible that this where Daniel was and the Jews in exile there, that this, it seems that this was handed down in some way 
Uh, We don't know what kind of parts of the Old Testament might have been passed down or maybe even parts of Daniel itself were available. But they were convinced. They knew this one thing, that the king of the Jews had been born. However, they ascertained it from what scripture they had and studying the stars. We really don't know. Okay, we just don't. Though there are a lot of great guesses at that. So they traveled to see the baby king. They left work and home and family to follow this star. As one scholar says, when they heard the king had been born, they moved at once in costly devotion. Now, they didn't know exactly what city, but king of the Jews, okay, probably Israel. So that's where they headed. And they went naturally to Jerusalem, the capital. We'll find out something there. We'll get further instructions. Uh, and we won't spend any time on what happened there and, and even Herod's uh, motives. But when they found out that it was Bethlehem, they were hardly on their way until the star reappeared to them. And it's at this point that I agree with the scholars that you're dealing likely with a miracle here. Because no star way up there is going to point you to a particular house in a city, right? It ain't going to happen. But some way, God called a point of light that looked just like a star to guide them exactly to where the baby was. That's what I would say. And it's as though uh, the original star indicators were head west. Go to Jerusalem, you'll get further instructions there. Now the star, in a sense, is taking them by the hand and saying, I'll take you there myself. And they were overjoyed because this was God himself boldly, clearly pointing them directly to the place. Uh, They rejoiced in knowing where to go. They rejoiced in knowing God's hand in, in the whole thing. And apparently they knew that he was more than just an earthly king. I mean, they served great kings, right? Why would you travel maybe up to a thousand miles with probably a big entourage to worship just another earthly king and to worship him. They knew this king of the Jews was more than just that, that this is a king for the whole earth, a king for us, a king beyond human kings, the king that the whole earth needed. And when you meet a king, you bring a gift costly, grand gifts. Scholar writes, frankincense was a glittering, fragrant gum taken laboriously from the bark of rare trees. Myrrh was another valuable spice and perfume. As a bottle of perfume, a bottle of myrrh could cost as much as $10,000 in today's terms. You can see me, you know, in the store looking at bottles of perfume for Kate. Yeah! <laughs> I don't want that one. Thank you. <clears throat> No offense, sweetie. No, no offense. But. And, <laughs> yeah, amen. Every man, amen. <laughs> um, this visit, though, recalls, and this all the more points to his kingship, it recalls the queen of Sheba uh, visiting King Solomon. Her gift to Solomon was gold and a great quantity of spices and other Old Testament passages take her visit and gifts 
as a model for the future glory of Messiah. As it says in Isaiah 60, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You know, one thing that points to the authenticity of this is that, but, but is, is that it's these wise men, because the Bible speaks out so strongly against astrology and magic. And if you're just making something up, you're not going to make up guys associated with magic as your witnesses. Just not going to make that up. Just like the women in the resurrection. Women weren't even allowed to give testimony in courts in the Jewish days, right? In the Jewish society. But they said, this is what happened. They saw it and, and they bore witness. This is what happened. These, these kings, these, these uh, magi came. So we must ask this question. Do we joyfully worship Christ? Do we seek Christ himself as they did? That's one question to ask. Is he the end of all that we do? Is our eye ever upon him? They were not content just to see the star. They had to see him. And so in all of Christianity, in all that you do, it's all for Christ. It's all with him in mind, his glory, his mission. To know him, to fellowship with him. You read Philippians 3, you'll see this is what drives Paul. It's all about Jesus himself. And do we rejoice over him? In the prospect of knowing more of him and having more of him and being more like him, of making him known and manifesting him. You see, our, our joy is contagious if we rejoice over him, if we're amazed, we're in awe of him, cultivate that awe and joy in him as you seek him. And, and these things are part of God's salvation. You think the, the wise men on their own just happened to know they were rescued by God's grace. They wouldn't, they didn't even know anything. They were rescued by God's grace. He, he used particular means to make known the king of the Jews to them and, and look, look at what happened in their lives. And then, of course, do we offer up our lives to him as they offered up gifts that was a sign of their submission, a sign of their allegiance to him? Do we humble ourselves before him? Do we submit ourselves to his will? Do we call ourselves his servant? Are we in awe of his royal authority and his glorious dignity? Is it our honor to belong to him and represent him? That's part of what it is to offer ourselves up to him. That's God's salvation for us too. It's part of his rescue that we would seek Christ, that we would rejoice in him, that we would offer up our lives to him. And don't miss this. 
He is the revelation of God. He is God come to earth. So in giving yourself to Christ, you're giving yourself up to God himself. That's who God is, the God who comes to rescue. And when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, it's not just that you come through me to get to the Father, but in that same context, he says to Thomas, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do you embrace the Father? How do you embrace God? Embrace Christ. There's no other way to embrace God. No other way to know God. No other way to rejoice in God. But to know and rejoice in God come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. So I can leave you with this. Who do you want to identify with in this story? Herod? The leaders in Jerusalem or the wise men? And by God's grace, we can all be truly wise men in giving ourselves up to Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you in the giving of Jesus Christ, your Son, for our salvation. We praise you that we could have such a king who at such a cost lay down his life for his people. A king who rescues his people by standing in their place and bearing their punishment away. A king who is a good shepherd who cares for his people, who rescues them and does them good. As we read, your mercies are new. As we sang, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, take away any part of us that is troubled by Christ or apathetic toward Christ. Make us to rejoice in Christ. Make us to trust him. Make us to adore him. Make us to seek him. Make us to give our lives up to him with gladness. Amen.